Last weekend, we celebrated Easter. You know how it goes. Good Friday, Jesus is crucified. Everything looks like it is for naught. Everything looks like failure. It has fallen apart. You can understand that his followers um, were disillusioned, were hurt, were in pain, were struggling. You can think about Saturday and how dark a day that would be, how difficult it would be, how confusing it would be, not knowing what they were going to do, not knowing how they were going to go forward. And then on Sunday, Jesus is resurrected. And uh, that Sunday morning, at least some of the disciples, it's the women, because the men have all run off scared. We'll talk more about that next week, actually. Uh, but it's the women who show up to the temple and first hear about Jesus, and then they run and tell everybody else. And you start to think, I think we should start to think, now what? What are they thinking? Jesus has been crucified. He goes down into death. He overwhelms it. He overcomes it. He's, he's risen back from the dead. They see Jesus, and you go, now what? What are you going to do with that spectacular, unbelievable truth that you have just witnessed? And John 20, verse 19 says, this is where the disciples were and what they were doing. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. After all of that, they're locked in a little room in fear. That's what fear does. Locks us into little rooms, into small spaces, into small superficial lives. In fact, that's not foreign to many of us. There's so many of us for which fear is uh, a drone. Our anxiety, our worry, and our fear is a constant and consistent drone in the background of our lives that we live with. Some of us that we've got really used to. This sort of lack of confidence or security, this wondering if we are enough or have enough. We struggle with all kinds of specific fears. We're afraid that we maybe won't fit in, afraid of what people think of us, afraid to fail, afraid to be embarrassed or humiliated, afraid that we won't have enough. All kinds of ways that fear permeates many of our lives. And when that happens, it stifles our growth. It leads us to a very shallow and unsatisfying existence, certainly an unsatisfying spiritual existence. In religion, I don't think it's a mistake, and I certainly, I think for John, there's a couple of really important things as he writes his gospel to us um, that, that he's being clear on. I don't think it's a mistake that right away he says they were afraid, living in fear, and it was of the Jewish leaders, or in other words, their religious leaders. Because not only do we live oftentimes out of fear, worry, anxiety, but we oftentimes, our religion doesn't help. In fact, our religion is often fueled by fear, unfortunately. Now, I'm going to use the term we here. I hope this is not true of us. I just know it is oftentimes true of people who use religion, Christian people, that there's so much fear. So I'm going to say we, but my hope is that this is not who we are. But there's a lot of ways that we make people afraid using our religion. We're afraid, we make people afraid of going to hell. That becomes a huge driving force for a lot of people. Why should you follow Jesus? Why should you be a Christian? Why should you come to church? Why should you live a moral life? Why should you do any of this? So that you don't go to hell. I remember when I was finished seminary, I had actually literally just finished my last seminary, my last um, chunk of seminary, the last class. I was coming home. The semester was over. Uh, I went to school just in the States, just outside of Boston. And uh, my wife and I, the last year I was in seminary, were engaged. And so we traveled that interstate between here and Boston uh, like a zillion times, it felt like. I uh, got very comfortable with it. But I'd finally finished. I was all done. I would learn everything that I needed to know in life and ministry. Thank you. That was a joke. 
You think when you finish seminary you know everything, but you don't, don't know anything. Anyways, I'm coming home, and I pull off into the gas station right there on the interstate somewhere in New York State, uh, and I'm filling up for gas. I'm minding my own business, and I hear from behind me across to, at another pump, and some big, deep, loud voice says, your sins are sending you to hell. And so I did what I thought was the most wise and best thing to do and ignored that sound. Went back to pumping gas. But I heard uh, that sound, that voice come again. Son, your sins are sending you to hell. And I was like, I, he can't be talking to me. That, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen. Finally, though, I look up because I'm a little interested in this booming voice. And I see across the way at another pump the largest, most imposing man I've ever seen. Like one of these people that has muscles bulging everywhere, like they live at the gym, that's all that they do, this huge imposing person. And now, I didn't want to do this, but I couldn't help it, I look up, so he catches my eye. He's looking right at me, your sins are sending you to hell. And so I took all the wisdom that I had learned at seminary and every piece of maturity that I thought I had, and I got in my car and I drove away. <laughs> Sometimes in religion, we make people afraid of going to hell. Maybe well-intentioned, but that becomes the driving force. We make people afraid that if they make mistakes, they'll be ostracized. That perhaps you'll be kicked out of your community. You won't fit in here. We don't do those kind of things. And if you've ever done them, then maybe you don't belong here. We make people afraid that they're different. That's usually because we don't understand them. We make people afraid that God is always mad at them. Perhaps you've had that experience, that when you think of God and who God is, that the imagery that comes to mind is sort of this far-off and distant old man who's, who's upset with you, who's wagging his finger at you, who's looking over your shoulder at everything that you do like a helicopter parent, and he's not real happy about it. I wonder why we do that. Maybe it's because scared people scare people. There's a lot of people who are scared in and of themselves, who don't have that security and confidence. We just don't know any better. And so we use these scare tactics. Maybe if you're scared enough, you won't do bad things. Maybe if you're scared enough, you'll, you'll kind of conform to the religious way of doing things that we have here. Maybe if you're afraid enough, then we'll find a way to ensure our lives. Well, that's kind of what we do when we're fueled by fear. We live this kind of shallow and small life. We look for the right prayer to say that'll keep us out of hell. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's really good to have those milestone prayers, I think, where we make commitments to God, where we give ourselves over to God, and many of us have done that, and that's important, but that's not why God won't send us to hell. Sometimes we look for a, a formula. If there's just the right formula that I can fit into, then maybe I'll be all right and I don't have to be scared anymore. Some of us, we just pretend. We pretend to be the kind of person that we want to be or that other people want to be. We engage in sort of an acting game that leaves us feeling, if we're honest with ourselves, deeply unworthy and unloved because if anybody knew who I really was and what I really did or what I really thought, they wouldn't accept me. And then, of course, we demonize other people who don't seem to fit into what we've, the little box we've scared ourselves into. And it leaves us so far short of what God has for us, so far short of the experience that God wants to have for us when we live out of that fear and anxiety and worry, when we can't live out of a place where we're confident and secure. That's actually what God does want for us. Do you want me to prove that to you? First John chapter 4. 
the letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, really are, should be read in light of the Gospel of John, sort of as a continuation, as an expansion of what the Gospel of John tells us about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And then these short letters that come right towards the end of the New Testament uh, are just more of the, the community trying to figure out and wrap their heads around what it looks like to follow Jesus. And listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 4. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us. I love those last two verses. Love has no fear. If you come into what we call a loving relationship with God and is fueled by fear and I'm scared, what does God think of me? What is he going to do to me? And if you try and live out of that, you're not living in God because God is love. Such love has no fear because it expels all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Some of our translations use that word, cast all fear. I don't know if there are any people here who fish and they cast. But when you do that, typically what you do, you know, you've got your fishing rod and your bait is on the hook and all the rest of it. And you kind of open up the line and you rear back and then you go forward. And at that moment when the trajectory is perfectly right and you need to cast, what do you need to do? you got to let go of the line. And when you let go, it goes out. If you don't let go, you look stupid. It just stays right there. You're not fishing. Perfect love casts out all fear. It lets it go. It says you don't need to be afraid anymore. You live in love. And so if we live in love... Not fear. What does that look like? What are we replacing fear with? What do we, if we cast out fear, if we let it go, if we throw it, if it's gone, what, what is the alternative? How do we live? We live in union. How do you know that you're not going to hell after you die or that your, your soul just doesn't disappear or, or, or be obliterated or whatever theory we might have of what happens after we die? Where do we get security and where do we get confidence if it's not, hey, we're so scared that we need to do the right formula and say the right prayer? It's in love. It's in union. It is what they say here in 1 John, that we live in God and God lives in us. And that's love. Love is that relational give and take. It is being together. This is a a massive part of uh, when we take communion, when we remember, like we did last Friday, when we remember that Jesus died for us and forgave us and everything is grace and we are here to receive. And when we take communion, we eat Jesus' body, we bread, and we drink his blood, just vivid, even disgusting imagery. But the point is, you take that, the person of Jesus, you take the presence of Jesus, and it enters into your being. You digest it. It becomes part of who you are. This is union. How do we know that we're okay with God? How do we know that he's okay with us? How do we have security and confidence? It's not because we've we've got an insurance policy for everything that could go wrong in our spiritual lives. It's found in union. It's found in love. It's because God is love and has called us to love. And so when we love, we live in him and he lives in us. That's beautiful. I love how it says that uh, that love has no fear because it casts out the fear If we're afraid, so if you find yourself saying, but I am afraid, 
then that is for fear of punishment, and it shows that you haven't fully experienced his, his perfect love. And so you say, well, what if, what if I'm afraid? I'm, I'm you know, not upset with you, not mad at you. It's just we need to go further. We need to move beyond that because fear isn't really going to grow us to where we need to go. It's not going to give us this deep and mature and beautiful life in God. If we really want to grow, if we really want to experience who God's created us to be to greater and greater levels, it's love that does that and not fear. In fact, I would say that anything you think you can achieve through fear, love will do better. That if you think maybe we can get ourselves or other people to conform or to be moral or to live properly or to uh, adhere to a certain religious model or whatever it is that you think by fear we might have to do that, we'll save people from hell by yelling at them at a gas station. Love will do better. And of course, we see at the end of that passage that our love for God, Jesus made this clear, cannot be taken apart from our love for each other. We love each other because he loved us first. When you experience that kind of love and when you let that love be the fuel for your life, then all of a sudden we can, we can grow beyond that, that drone of insecurity and fear and worry and start to more and more experience a peace and a confidence and a deep relationship with God that helps us to have a good, deep relationship with others, to build over time unity with each other and union with one another in deep and profound ways. When we think we can coerce people into falling in line or being moral or conforming to our expectations, that might work for a short and superficial time, but it really doesn't help us grow. It really won't take us anywhere. So Jesus after showing up, and here's the disciples, they're locked in a room in fear. Even after Jesus has defeated death, they don't know what to do with that, and they're scared. Why would they be scared of the religious leaders? For a lot of reasons. The, Jesus has been crucified, so they could be targets, again, to be ostracized, perhaps to be arrested or tortured. We don't know. But certainly, they're not on the good side of kind of the majority of, of people and the religious system as it was being lived out. And so here they are, locked into their room, unable to live out the adventure God has called them on, unable to, to freely express all that Jesus had done in them and trying to figure it out. It says, suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. I love that that's the first thing that Jesus says. Peace be with you. Now, for a Jewish rabbi, not an uncommon greeting. Uh, in Hebrew, would have said shalom. Talks about this over, overarching kind of holistic wellness in your life, this sense that everything is okay, that everything will be okay. That's what we celebrated on Easter. Now he's reinforcing that. So not uncommon for Jewish people to treat them this way, but also for the Messiah, one of the primary characteristics of the kingdom that the Messiah was supposed to bring was peace, that he was going to usher in a time of peace. Many people trying to figure out where does that peace come from? How does it look? What, what if we're not at peace? What if for them, the Romans are still in charge? What if there's still violence? What if there's still threats? And yet Jesus can show up and in light of the resurrection and in light of defeating death and the greatest enemies, he can truly deeply say to them, peace. Jesus had said earlier that I bring you peace, but not as the world brings you peace. How does the world, world uh, at least attempt to bring us peace. Sometimes it's through dominance. Sometimes it's through violence. Sometimes it's through fear. Sometimes through coercion. As long as you do what whoever's in charge tells you what to do. But Jesus says, I come and I bring you a different kind of peace, not the way that you'll find it anywhere else. Jesus is bringing the peace of grace and of love that we've already read about. 
It's amazing what Jesus doesn't say to the disciples when he comes in, especially again, remember, the men. He could have walked in, suddenly he appears, and here they are, they're afraid, they're trying to figure out what to do, they're locked themselves in a room. He could have said, I don't know how I'm ever going to trust you guys again. He could have said, where did you go? He could have said, I can't believe that when they arrested me, you ran away. I don't know how I'll ever trust you. I don't know how you could be part of my movement. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You should be afraid. You can't even stick with me when I needed you. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Instead, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Showing a different way forward. Verse 20, it says, And as he spoke, then he showed them his wounds and his hands and his side, They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. He repeats it. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus shows his wounds in his hands and his side. Um, You ever wonder why? I think a lot of people assume that he's proving his identity. I'm Jesus, but I think, uh, I think there's more to it. Uh, there could have been a beauty mark. There could have been part of his characteristics. See, it's me, Jesus. Don't you recognize me? But instead, it's, it's his wounds. I want you to see my hands and my feet. I want you to see where I was crucified and that I was crucified. And I think that is important. Jesus is actually showing them right in the middle of their fear and trying to figure out what to do next. Now what? What do we do? He shows them his wounds, that he is the suffering servant, that he is the one that was arrested and crucified. This is not somebody else, but, but I think ultimately what he's saying is he's showing them his suffering, that he suffered. Now, love, we've already talked about. Love is a great transformer. Fear is not a great transformer. Fear leads us into that small and superficial space where we need to hide, where we need to act, where we need to try and put on a, a face for other people but we live in that, that, that drone of anxiety and worry and fear. Love is a great transformer because it brings us into unity. It gives us some confidence. It gives us some security. It gives us a platform from which we can live. It gives us a better way forward, which I think is what Jesus is doing here. But now Jesus shows him our second great transformer, and that is suffering. And that's hard to say because nobody really wants to hear that. How do we really grow? How are we transformed? How does God move us forward? Well, one way is love. And perhaps the second most powerful way is through suffering. And again, nobody likes to hear that. Nobody wishes suffering on on anybody else, except that many of us would look back on our lives and say, where were the times where I grew the most and the deepest? And we might really wrestle with why certain things happened to us, how certain things happened to us, wish that they weren't that way, except we would say that in those moments, they were transformative experiences. And I think Jesus needs them to know that suffering is not the end. Suffering is not a sign that you've failed. In fact, maybe suffering is something we need to work on that we don't fear. Why? What happens? Suffering is a great transformer because I think two things. Number one, it softens your heart and your ego. It reminds you that you're not always in charge. You can't always fix everything. That life is difficult. Uh, There's... Those moments where we have to learn to accept suffering and hardship and hurt. Second thing that I think follows is that it helps us to learn dependence. 
And so where it breaks down our ego and our independence and our thinking, I can do everything and solve everything and my life is always going to be on the chart up and to the right and more success and more money and more notoriety and more leadership opportunities. What happens when all that falls apart and my ego falls apart that it helps us to learn this dependence that we are not on our own and in fact that God will show up for us. He is there for us. When Jesus shows, us, shows his disciples his wounds... He's not just saying, see, I'm Jesus. He's saying, I have suffered, and yet that is not the end. Suffering doesn't have the final word. Jesus himself surrenders himself in love and dependence in that way. Shows us exactly what we just talked about. We're coming off a series before Easter that we talked about uh, the temptations of Jesus, where Jesus was tempted to, to be productive and to be popular, to be powerful, and to have everybody go, wow, look at you, and then he's crucified, and Jesus now shows up to his disciples who are scared, and he goes, it's, it's going to be okay, even with these wounds, even though it looks like I failed, even though it looks like I was completely unpopular, even though it looks like I was so powerless, actually, these are the things that help us to find union with God. Breaks down our ego, helps us to learn dependence and to know that it doesn't defeat us. It means that suffering, evil, pain do not win. It means that you can be wounded and yet heal. You can absorb pain and yet endure. And you can be crucified and resurrected. Can I say things, those things again? Because we all experience suffering. We all experience pain, but you can be wounded, you can be wounded and heal. You can absorb pain and endure. You could be crucified and resurrected. This is the message of Jesus showing his wounds. See my wounds, and then they have joy. They're still trying to piece it together, but he was crucified and yet resurrected. That in suffering, there is actually a way forward. That here God meets us in a deeply profound and loving way. He provides for us. He cares for us. And why do you need to hear this? Because like I said, all of us experience pain. All of us experience wounds. All of us experience shortcomings. All of us have times in our lives, if you've been alive long enough, maybe you haven't got there, where you go, I don't know the way forward. I don't know if I can recover from this. I don't know if it will ever get better. Jesus says, see my wounds. You can be hurt, but you can heal. This is the way forward. So Jesus repeats it. Peace be with you. Even now, even in light of all that's happened, I'm bringing you peace that you can live in. He says that because the next line he says, the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There's an adventure for you. There's a powerful life for you. There are things that God is calling you to do that will require you to rise above a level of fear, that will require you to take risks, that will require you to put yourself out there. But peace to you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, for those who probably knew their scriptures very well, they would have seen Jesus breathing on them and the Holy Spirit and probably would have thought of the opening chapters of the Bible so often it was referred to when Jesus, as you have this, this story, Jesus creating, God creating everything, God creating human beings, God creates Adam, and then he breathes his breath into him and he becomes a living being or he becomes a soul. 
not just dirt, not just stuff, not just material, but then the Spirit of God breathed in, and that's when he comes alive, and that's when the disciples are to truly come alive, now living in union, now living with the Spirit of God, not just around them, but in them. Why? Because I'm sending you on this adventure. I'm sending you the way I was sent. I'm sending you into this world. I'm sending you into a scary place. I'm sending you to a place where you might suffer, but fear not. Have peace. And he breathed the Spirit of God into them in a beautiful way. Take the Holy Spirit wherever you go. He lives inside of you. Then, just to follow up, verse 23, he says, If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So remember, this is Jesus showing up his disciples. He's got a few minutes seemingly with them. And they're afraid, and he picks just a couple of things to do and to say, to give them peace, to breathe on them with the Holy Spirit, and then to tell them to forgive. And you might say, isn't it God's job to forgive? Isn't that up to God? God forgives sins? Actually, Jesus had a lot of problems with religious leaders because he would go around forgiving sins, and they would say, it's only God that forgives sins. Jesus here suggests that if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven, and if you don't forgive them, then they are not forgiven. What does that mean? Does God forgive sins? Yes, I believe that God forgives sins. But apparently, you can either be a conduit of God's forgiveness or a barrier to God's forgiveness. That you can let that grace and forgiveness flow through you, or you can shut it off. You can extend it to people and let them know they're forgiven, or you can hold it back. It's an incredible thing when there's only a few things that Jesus does and teaches here in the moments that he meets with them. But he gives them peace, he gives them his presence. And then he gives us a powerful lesson about forgiveness. Now go and let the floodgates of forgiveness open. Well, why, why? I mean, I think if Jesus is coming back to union and love, that's why. It's where they come from. He doesn't go out and say, now go scare people and tell them how bad that they are. Make sure that they're convinced that they're going to hell, that they're not adhering to the religion properly. But instead, maybe this is how we should create a formula. Go extend forgiveness. And when you forgive those sins, they're forgiven. That what God wants to do, he wants to do through you. So you can choose whether you're a conduit or a barrier. Choose to be a conduit. Send that out. Verse 24, it says, One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now, this is Thomas. Thomas has been nicknamed by a lot of people doubting Thomas because of this passage. I think he gets a bad rap when we call him that. For whatever reason, and we don't know, he wasn't there. So think about this for a second. The other disciples, they just saw the wounds. That's what he asked to see. We don't know where he was. Maybe he was even more disillusioned than them. Maybe he was scared running around. Maybe he was trying to figure out a different way to make a living. We have no idea. But he shows up, and then he goes, I can't believe this until I see the wounds, until I put my fingers in it. I want to know. I got to understand that someone could be crucified and resurrected. I got to understand that there's actually that kind of healing. I can't believe that. And so we go, oh, doubting Thomas. But listen, everybody else got to see the wounds, and none of us would believe that either. So let's let him off the hook. The nickname that we are given in the scripture is that Thomas is the twin. He's called the twin a bunch of times. 
Um, we don't know anything about him, like his, does he have a brother or sister, the twin? We don't know anything about another twin, except that Thomas is the twin. There's two theories that I like about why they call him the twin in the scripture, or why, even if he had a twin biologically, why they would bring this point up. One is they say that Thomas, his twin is actually Jesus. Thomas actually, we call him Doubting Thomas because of this, he's actually a really good disciple. You know, he comes along at one point, Jesus has been teaching them that he's going to die, and most of the time the disciples are like, oh, we're going to ignore that part, we don't really get it, how could a Messiah die? Thomas goes, we should go die with him. He throws it out to people earlier in John's gospel. Later he's in this back and forth with Jesus, and, and Jesus is talking about the way to the Father, and nobody understands it, and Thomas just engages in a dialogue, and it's this famous passage where Jesus ends up saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas is actually pretty good, stick with Jesus, all the rest of it. Maybe his twin is Jesus, is that we realize Thomas is actually trying to be like Jesus. The other theory is that we are Thomas's twin. And that we are supposed to imagine ourselves there with Thomas. He says, I can't believe this unless I, unless I can really put my hands here. I don't know if I can get over the fact that there was a crucifixion. I don't know if I can believe this is just too good to be true that he could come back from the dead. I don't know that I could be sent the way that he's sent. I don't know that there's a, an adventurous, risky way of living for God in this world. I don't know if I could love the way that he loved. I don't know if I could give up my life for the people that I'm called to give them up. And here, it's Thomas the twin who's saying the same thing, and maybe we're the twins that need to come along and ask the same question. The next few verses get very repetitive. Thomas gets almost exactly what the other disciples get. Eight days later, John loves uh, the, the imagery of a week. A week, again, Genesis 1, this is six days of creation and a day of rest. And uh, for John, the resurrection is a new week. It's the eighth day. It's the first day of a new week, often that he refers to talking about a new way of life, something new that God has burst into the world. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Remember that? Repetition, you're supposed to go... Okay, notice that. Don't miss it. He pronounces peace to them. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. What's Jesus doing? He's leading Thomas into a new future beyond fear. You can't go into the future until you're ready to let go of the past, until you realize and you learn that truly you could be wounded and you could be healed, hurt, and yet that's not the end. The past is not your future. To really tell him you don't need to fear even if the worst happens because fear will keep you living in this small, little, reactive room. Thomas, now seeing this, we don't know if he actually put his fingers and hands on the wounds, doesn't say, but then he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Thomas, you got it, and you got to see me. And then maybe that second line is for us. Twins, blessed are you even if you don't see, but you believe that this is your way forward too. This is your way out of fear and into the adventure of God. I invite you to ask yourselves two questions this week in response to this. Number one, what are you most afraid of? What scares you the most of your life? What is that, that constant hum of fear that you live with? And as you answer that question, I, I would invite you to ask God 
into that aspect of your life, to transform that fear into faith, for you to trust him in that area, to ask if there is something he's calling you to do in order to surrender that area of your life to him and know that he brings you forward in love. And then secondly, who do you need to forgive? It's no accident Jesus follows this up. And uh, again, we did this sermon series in March, almost leading up to uh, Easter, uh, talking about forgiveness and how important and crucial that is in our lives and in following Jesus. And uh, if you haven't seen that, maybe to go back and look back at some of that, uh, but to ask yourself, who do you need to release or who do you need to reassure of forgiveness and to be a conduit of God's grace? Because if we're going to cast out all fear, we need love. And forgiveness is a huge part of that restorative love that we need to live in. Finish with this, because all of us, uh, all of us experience fear uh, in all kinds of different areas of our lives. And, and all of us need uh, constantly, I think, to be brought back to a loving God who wants to bring us forward and out of that fear and into a place of faith and into a place of confidence, into a place uh, where we can live joyfully knowing that we've seen the Lord. And even when the worst happens and even through suffering, even in the hurt and the wounds, there is healing. So hear God's word to us today from Isaiah 41 that says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, thank you for the wounds of Jesus that show us that suffering is not the end. Thank you for showing us that even the, the greatest things that we fear you are far greater than them. Thank you for showing us a way forward. We thank you that your disciples found a way, uh, at least some of the time, to conquer that fear and, and that your spirit uh, exploded into the world and that we're here a couple of thousands years later, worshiping the one who has conquered death. Today, I lift up uh, anyone who perhaps, even right now, those fears have risen up in their mind and in their heart. Perhaps they're even feeling an anxiety in their chest or in their gut. And God, I pray that today that they would know that you are with them, that you bring peace, that you are showing a way forward, and that you're holding their life with your victorious right hand. We love you because you have loved us first. In Jesus' name, 